This is First Draft, a dialogue on writing. I'm Mitzi Rapkin. First Draft highlights the voices of writers as they discuss their work, their craft, and the literary arts. Coming up, an interview with Stephen Pressfield, author of the novel A Man at Arms. You know, I definitely believe that life happens on at least two dimensions, and that the dimension we're in, the material dimension, is by far the inferior dimension. And that, uh, so anyway, I'm fascinated with how we get to that other dimension, whatever, whatever it is. And I think that's what the writer's life, the artist's life is about. We'll be back with Stephen Pressfield in just a bit. First, I want to say to you, thank you for listening. The episode you're about to tune into represents eight plus years of dedication and perseverance for producing this show. In addition to conversations that go into depth about a writer's work and obsessions, this show and every interview it features aims to embody the values of honesty, vulnerability, curiosity, and connection. I invite you to join me in this journey as a First Draft patron, which gives you access to cuts from the interviews that didn't make it into the final show, ad-free, pitch-free episodes, and writing tips from my guests. You can become a supporter by going to patreon.com slash firstdraftwriters. That's p-a-t-r-e-o-n dot com slash firstdraftwriters. Any amount is welcome, but for $6 a month, you receive thank you gifts on a monthly basis. Plus, when you donate to First Draft, you are joining the community of writers and readers who support conversations like the one you are about to hear. With your donation, you are saying yes to continuing the space of honesty, vulnerability, curiosity, and connection that each show reaches to achieve. You are the scaffolding that holds up this platform that shares the insights and challenges of the writing life. So please go to patreon.com slash firstdraftwriters. And let's be honest, there is so much free content out there. In fact, what you are about to listen to is free but it is not without expense in hard costs and labor to make. Don't get me wrong, producing these interviews is indeed a labor of love, but there is an incredible amount of labor involved, time and effort, planning and schedule wrangling across time zones, from Colorado to New York to London to Tel Aviv to Auckland and back again. And it all adds up to the creation of this show and the archive, which has more than 300 episodes you can dive into. I put so much care and effort into this show, and I hope you can tell with every episode. The process begins when I select a book, contact the author, schedule the interview. Then I read the book, take notes, conduct research, have the conversation, and edit the show. This takes equipment, organization, more late nights than you can imagine, and a lot of heart and sweat to come to fruition each week. And there is no staff. I am the show from start to finish. I know you may not be in front of a computer right now, so why not write a note on your hand or set the alarm on your phone to remind yourself to donate to First Draft when you get home? Please beat the odds of having to listen to this seven times before you join the First Draft community. Go to patreon.com slash firstdraftwriters. Please stay tuned at the end of this show. I'll offer recommendations on an episode in the archive that is similar to the one you're about to hear. And please rate the show on iTunes and tell everyone you know to subscribe. And thank you for your support and for being here with me today, right now, in this moment, and on to the show. 
My guest today is Stephen Pressfield, author of six books on writing, 11 novels, and three books of nonfiction. Pressfield wrote for 27 years before his first novel, The Legend of Bagger Vance, was published. Before that, he worked 21 jobs in 11 states. His titles include The War of Art, The Artist's Journey, Gates of Fire, The Lion's Gate, and Tides of War, among others. There's a recurring character in his books named Telamon, a mercenary of ancient days. He doesn't say much, rarely gets hurt, and doesn't seem to age. Telamon is the main character in Pressfield's new book, A Man at Arms, which takes place in the first century AD in Jerusalem and the Sinai Desert. At the story's open, Jesus' crucifixion is in the recent past, and agents of the Roman Empire receive information about a pilgrim bearing an incendiary letter from Paul the Apostle to insurrectionists in Corinth. The Romans hire Telamon to intercept the pilgrim carrying the letter, but the journey reveals to Telamon that there is more than money at stake on this mission as he hunts down the pilgrim Michael and his young companion, a feral, mute girl. We began the interview with Stephen Pressfield sharing where his fascination with biblical times and historical fiction came from. It really came as a complete surprise to me at writing. I had no clue that I was interested in that stuff. I never used to read it or anything. Uh, my first book was The Legend of Bagger Vance, which is a golf story. Then the problem was, what am I going to do next? You know, how do you follow that? You know, so I just was sort of casting about. And um, I've always loved to read the ancient Greeks, you know, Herodotus, Thucydides, all that stuff. I read that for fun. And I just kind of came upon this uh, section about the Battle of Thermopylae in Herodotus. And I just thought, oh, what a great story. So I just kind of got into that. And I just seemed maybe I had a previous life there or something like that. But I I've just felt right at home. And so... Um, I, I kind of stayed there for a bunch of books. And as you know, the latest one, A Man at Arms, is is a return to not that era, that era completely, but nearby. Do you think there's something about your upbringing and military background that maybe attracts you to this time period because it's so, in some levels, it's so organized in that way? Um, I, no, I don't think so. I, I'd like to say it does. But uh, the thing about the ancient world, particularly the ancient Greek world, was it was pre-Christian, pre-communist, pre-psychotherapy, pre-fascist, pre-any of these isms that have the idea that we can perfect human nature. Like, if you think about Christianity, sort of the underlying role is, well, if we can only imitate Christ. If we could only live the way Jesus lived, everything would be wonderful, right? Or if you think about communism, the idea is if only we could, you know, uh, live a perfect communal life where we take, what is it, take from whatever they need and to for whatever that thing is, you know, that's a uh, uh, perfectly communist life like a kibbutz in Israel or something, that the world would be wonderful. Or psychotherapy says, you know, if only we could go back into our childhood or whatever it was and unearth the traumas that, you know, that uh, warped us or whatever, life would be wonderful. And I don't think any of that is true. And I, the Greeks didn't either. And I think that it's, to me, it's very refreshing to read their uh, take on anything. Like 
like the Greek gods are very, um, they're humans. They cheat, they steal, they have vanity, they do all kinds of, they play tricks on each other. And, and I think the Greeks sort of accepted human nature the way it really is. You know, if you read Thucydides and he's talking about the Peloponnesian War and all the horrible stuff that went on there, he'll have a phrase like, human nature being what it is, you know, the aristocrats then slaughtered the common, that sort of thing. So I think that's one of the appeals to me. I love the way the prose flows in, in the ancient world. Another part of it is the ancient world was so much smaller than ours. It's almost like a, like a little Petri dish. If you think about democracy, here we are in this country with 360 million people and all the crazy stuff that's going on. But if you go back to Athens, which was a greater democracy than ours by a lot, there were just 40,000 citizens. And so things are a lot simpler and you can kind of see paradigms and, and, and uh, patterns from an earlier era. So anyway, I think that's why I like the ancient world. How does that intersect or interplay with your interest in faith? That's uh, it's a great question. My feeling about faith or about spiritual things really comes more from the process of writing than it does from anything historical. You know, this this uh, first draft podcast is about the inner world of the writer. And I'm definitely a believer that ideas come to us from another source, you know, that we're not responsible for it. And if you if you uh, if you believe that, then you have to believe in some other dimension or some other higher realm. And uh, so I think it, what such as my feelings about faith are, that I think is where it comes from, rather than uh, the ancient world. You know, I definitely believe that life happens on at least two dimensions, and that the dimension we're in, the material dimension, is by far the inferior dimension. And that, uh, so anyway, I'm fascinated with how we get to that other dimension, whatever, whatever it is. And I think that's what the writer's life, the artist's life is about. So in this book, A Man at Arms, at the center of it, it takes place in 55 AD. And we have this man at arms whose name is Telamon. And he's kind of an independent contractor, I would say. Yeah. He, he, yes. he, he used to be a legionnaire and had allegiance to, to the Romans and, and served his time for 25 years. And then someone comes to him and offers him the chance to intercept a message. At this time, Paul the Apostle had written a note. He needed to get it to his followers. He was sending it out through various people to be protected in order to get there because the Romans certainly didn't want faith to come up and threaten what they had going on there. And so he was hired to intercept this message. He brings on a young a young boy named David as his apprentice, and so begins the journey. Tell me how you alighted on this story and what fascinated you about it, and then we'll talk about Telamon. I would say Telamon, he's a definitely an independent contractor, but I think of him as a gunslinger. I think of him as like a Western hero, like a Clint Eastwood type of hero or um, a samurai, a Ronin samurai, a solitary warrior whose faith is in his own skill and who is kind of a hardened 
isolated character, like some of the characters in Game of Thrones, I'm thinking of, which I've been watching lately. He's a character that's been in other books of mine and that I've always been fascinated by. But what appealed to me about that character is when, if you take a hard-boiled character like him who fights only for money, who really believes in nothing except his own skill, and throw him together with people of faith, which is what happens on this on this journey, then the question becomes, how is he, how is he going to react? What is this combustible mixture going to produce? I mean, in a way, one sort of predecessor for this is the movie Casablanca. If you think about the Humphrey Bogart character at the start of the movie, he says, you know, I stick my neck out for nobody. I'm the only cause I'm fighting for. Those are two of the famous lines from that movie. And he won't help anybody, et cetera, et cetera. But by the end of the movie, through Ingrid Bergman and et cetera, et cetera, he has completely gone the other, other way. So I, I, I thought of that, the drama inherent in, in that kind of story is, was a real draw for me in this, in this, uh, in this book. I thought, I, you know, this will be a lot of fun to figure out what happens. And why the letter of Paul the Apostle? Ah, that's, I'll give you another long answer, Mitzi, if, you, if it's okay with you. It's a great question. A few years ago, my niece was getting married, and she asked me to be the officiant. So I immediately turned to the Book of Common Prayer, looking for great quotes, you know, that I could pull out of the Bible or, or whatever. And so I picked, uh, you know, the certain ones that, um, you know, love uh, beareth all things, endureth all things, believeth all things, hopeth all things. Um, the, the quote about through, for now we see through a glass darkly. And the, the famous quote about for now abideth or just all three, faith, hope, and charity. But the greatest of these is charity. And I realized that all of these came from one source. They came from Paul's letter to the Corinthians. Um, and I thought that that letter was very much about love, about charity in, in his word. Um, and I thought that's, that's the opposite of what Telamon, our main character, lives his life by. So I thought somehow these, these two have, have, have got to clash somehow, and it has to you know, have an effect on, on Telamon. And also, the, the idea, really, of the story for me was that this letter was a real incendiary letter from the Roman point of view, Rome dominating the world and Judea at that time, and that if this letter got out and it was disseminated across all of the um, fledgling Christian communities around the world, including in Rome, then it could be really bad for, for Rome, so that... Uh, you know, this letter is a MacGuffin in the sense that it's the thing that the villain wants, the Romans being the villain. Um, so, uh, again, that really added to the drama, something the bad guys could be going after and um, that would create drama. So the style of the book is you have a few chapters, mostly at the beginning, where you have like the narrative and then you kind of cut back to a bigger picture of history to to t 
sort of ground the reader in where you are yeah. and and you you sort of speak to the reader in in a few of it um it, what, in one sense, you, you call attention to the fact that someone's reading it. You say it remains in use to this day. Any traveler familiar with the region will know it. And you're talking about the inn at the beginning. And in other times, you're, you're speaking to the reader. And I'm curious about this, this tactic. Well, first of all, thanks, Mitzi, for reading this book so closely and for really picking up on those things. Uh, I mean... Um, I, I wanted the, the book to feel like it was written then and written in 55 AD and, and written for people in 55 AD, even though um, it, it sort of addresses, a, it cheats a little bit and addresses a wider audience. And I'm, I'm not sure it was a particularly kosher tactic to do that, but I think it worked in the moment. Um, like one of the things that I explain is I know, you know, I talk about Rome uh, bringing roads to places where there were no roads because Romans were great engineers and bringing aqueducts and things like that um, and har building harbors and stuff like that. And I just felt like maybe it was a cheat, but I felt like it sort of needed to be needed to be explained, needed to be to, uh, told to the reader. Did you worry at all that it would take him out of any sort of fictive dream or did you, because a you, little, I worried a little bit, but it seemed to be working to me. So I just uh, let it go. Yeah. As you're explaining ancient Rome, it's clear that you have a great knowledge about that. And there's weaponry, there's clothing, there's descriptions of the physical environment because you visited this time period before, I'm sure it's kind of a lifetime of research, but how do you parse that out? How do you balance that when you're writing? Do you research things to death and then write, write the creative part or are you like oh, researching oh. and writing at the same time? Oh, okay. That's a great question. I'm definitely a believer in, well, I'll even took this from a friend of mine, Randy Wallace, who wrote Braveheart. And if you watch that movie, you thought, oh, boy, this is really accurate, you know, to the Scotland of whatever it was, whatever date it was. And I asked him once, you know, how do you do research, Randy? What's your theory on it? And he says, I do as little as possible. And he said, the important thing, he said, is get the story first. I want the story. What's the climax? What's act one? What's act two? What's act three? So on and so forth. And then I'll go back and, and make sure the research fits it. So for me, I, I, you're right. I did from, from all my books, I do have a kind of a grounding in what the ancient world was like. And also I've written uh, another book that was about Israel, uh, modern Israel. And I've spent nine weeks over there, you know, around the desert and, and that kind of thing. So I had a sense of the land already just from being on it. Um, so I didn't have to do that much research. Um, you know, weaponry you can pick up pretty quickly. Uh, you know, what sort of sword do they use? That kind of thing. Um, but I, I am a big believer in really salting the narrative with lots of details, and particularly visual details, because I think it comes alive to the to the reader when you can do that. So I really, when I do my research, I'm kind of I'm kind of focusing on things like that. Like um, one aspect of the story was that. Telamon and his young apprentice, David, when they cross the Sinai Desert, they go, they take mules. They don't take horses and they don't go on, on foot. 
And uh, so I, I did a lot of research on that about why mules are the superior animal for that kind of terrain and, and stuff like that. And I, I think, my hope is that when the reader reads that, it makes sense and they go, oh, I never thought that horses will break their legs in stony, hilly country, but mules won't, um, that kind of thing. One of the things that really fascinated me when you were talking about ancient Rome and Telamon working as a legionnaire was that basically these, these legionnaires had to give a certain amount of service. And once they gave that service, they got money. And the longer they served, they got more money. And I was like so fascinated by how could the Romans keep track of people back then? Like, how do they know you don't desert? Like, it's not like they look you up on the internet or follow you around on your <laughs> iPhone. Like, I, I was really fascinated by that. It might not have an answer, but it, it was really interesting. I guess maybe in some sense the community could inform on you. I don't know. I I think that actually one of the things about and again, I'm not a super expert on Rome, but I do think that one of the, in addition to the legions, to the military aspect of it, they had administrators, you know, an army of administrators, of tax collectors, of people who kept the records. And I think that was part of what made the empire so formidable, that they really did keep track of everybody. And they really did know you know, how much do we owe this particular sergeant? How many years has he served? What did he borrow from the army? And now he owes us or vice versa. So I do think that uh, Rome was probably the supreme, well, I don't know, maybe some of the uh, Babylonian type of states had great administrators as well, but, or Egypt probably had incredible administration, but certainly Rome really did. Talk about the tax collectors back in the days of uh, of Mary and Joseph and stuff like that. The censuses that they would take. Remember that, you know, when Jesus came in, he had, it was for a census, right? Everybody had to return to their, to the city of their birth to be counted. Telamon, you, you know, you're mentioning he's, he's like a gunslinger. He's like a Clint Eastwood type. What other qualities did you want him to have? Like when you were, you were trying to formulate him because it's, the way you, you just described it, you would think maybe he has a hard heart, but he doesn't totally. No, he doesn't at all, actually. It's really kind of a, a front, you know, that uh, a kind of a hard shell that he has evolved over, over time. Telamon is in my, he, he's a recurring character, as I said, and he's a little bit like the character of the Highlander in that he appears in different centuries and he hasn't aged. And I don't even know the answer to this. Is he the universal soldier or whatever it is? But he has sort of, in my mind, he has evolved through many lifetimes of being a soldier and has reached a stage of disillusionment, you know, where he has fought under good commanders and bad commanders. He's won and he's lost. You know, he's, he's seen it all. And it's sort of what has come down to him is... He says that the only goddess he worships is the, the Greek goddess Eris Strife, the goddess of strife. So um, he's, but yet, although he claims to fight only for money, that he's a mercenary, as we meet him in the story, he's basically penniless. 
you know, he only has what he has on his back, his weapons and stuff like that. And another character in the story, as I'm sure we will get into, the character of Michael, who is a sort of a, uh, a follower of Jesus, recognizes this and says to him, you know, you're not what you pretend to be. If you had really been fighting for money, you'd be living in a castle somewhere. Where did that money go? And Michael surmises, you gave it away, didn't you? You gave it to people that, that needed it. So, uh, so that's another aspect of a, of a lot of gunslinger type characters. If you think about Shane, do you remember the movie Shane with Alan Ladd? You know, he has kind of a, a kind heart, even though he's a professional killer. And I think it's sort of a, a classic uh, reveal in a story that the person isn't always what you thought he was. So, so you were saying earlier that he, he really cared about money. And, and there's a quote of him saying, I do not serve money. I make money serve me. At campaign's end, I care for neither praise nor blame. I want cash. I want to be paid. In that way, war is work, nothing more. To serve for money detaches the warrior from the object of his commander's desire. I serve for the serving only, fight for the fighting only, tramp for the tramping only. Was this an idea you had about Telamon before this book? And he, did he develop in some different way here? The interesting thing for me as a writer was that Telamon was not a character I planned. He became a minor character in two other books, and he just sort of appeared on the page. And he kind of had this philosophy about money that I didn't even give him. And I was sort of, you know, would make him speak on the page just to learn more about it. And the gist of his, of his um, feeling about money, he, he really didn't care about money. He gave it away. But what he wanted, he... He really felt like when you fight for a flag or you believe in some cause, and again, I'm talking about somebody that's been in many, many campaigns, he thought that was the height of folly, that it was just insanity to fight for a cause because he had fought for many causes and found them to be false when all was said and done. Or to fight for a flag, you know, he'd fought in enough campaigns, he knew what, what difference does it make, whether you're fighting for France or you're fighting for America or you're fighting for Russia. A flag is just a, a, an expression of vanity, a vanity of a nation or a people. And so it all sort of boiled down to him, like he said, to the goddess strife, that war was eternal, that the, the earth was founded. God, he says it another place in the book, Strife is the oldest of the gods, older even than the earth, that all things are born in strife and all things vanish in strife. So he, he had reached that sort of dark place where he said, I'm a warrior, I fight, you know? And, but as you can tell, that is a dark place. And that is a place that needs to be transcended. And it needs to be transcended by love one way or another. So... But I, I do think he had a he has and had a highly developed philosophy. It was a dark philosophy, but but it was uh, it was not superficial at all. Well, it's so interesting because as you write and we know about that time, the value of human life then seemed so minimal. Like to kill and crucify and destroy other humans was so base. I mean, you were talking earlier about how there was no isms. It just seemed like human life was so incredibly disposable at the whim of other people. 
Yeah, I think you're absolutely right. I mean, we it, it's hard, it's really hard to imagine ourselves back into that time because of what they did to each other, you know, what human beings did to each other. But again, as from Telemann's point of view, this is the world he grew up in. So it also has given him this dark point of view, you know? Um, and there's a there's another passage, which maybe I, I don't want to step on your toes, but the character of Michael, who's kind of the, the Christian in the story, observes of Telemann, he says, I've watched you when you fight when you prepare to take on the enemy. And I can see that you sort of mentally give up your life before you do this. You're not fighting out of anger. You're not fighting out of anything. You're fighting out of some sort of transcendental surrender. And um, which I think does come from that era where life was so cheap and you could lose it so fast, not even through somebody killing you, but through disease, through famine through anything. Yeah, so you mentioned Michael. So basically, once Telamon was hired by by the Romans to intercept this message, the person he's searching for is Michael. And Michael is accompanied by someone that we believe at first is his daughter, who is a young mute, who's very disheveled and um, dirty. And Michael heard and saw Jesus and saw him crucified, saw his message and became a believer and was carrying this message from Paul. And at first he is, Telamon actually meets him at the very beginning. And then, then he, before he knows he's searching for him really. And then he evades him and he finds him again. And Michael is steeped in faith. He's, he's genuine. He's earnest. He, he believes what he's believe believes and he's willing to die for it. And along with him is this girl who is preternaturally instinctive and and powerful and strong, although she's mute. And she becomes the one that kind of undoes Telamon in terms of like opening his heart. I, I wanted Michael, the character of Michael, who the Romans believe is the one who's carrying this letter. Either he's carrying it or... He's going to meet somebody that's going to give it to him. They can't find it. They don't know. They've had him. They've tortured him. They can't find the letter. They don't know where it is, but they're they're absolutely convinced that this is the guy who's who's delivering it. And so I really wanted him to be Telemann's opposite. As Telemann is kind of a man of no faith, as you say, Michael is a man of supreme faith. But the two of them because Michael gets tortured a couple of times in this story, once in the backstory and once in the moment. And he wins Telemann's respect for, for, for that. For In Telemann's eyes, Michael is a warrior on the same level that he is, or even more so. And, but the difference is that Michael's courage is based on faith, whereas Telemann's courage is based in faith in his own in his own superiority and his own skill. So Telemann in many ways is in awe of Michael. And Michael also admires Telemann because he sort of, he recognizes the spiritual elements, even though Telemann tries to bury them and won't admit them and will deny them. Michael sees that he, whether he, Telemann, whether he realizes it or not, is really exactly like Michael. They are, they are both men of another dimension of reality. And Michael really brings that that out as you had as you had mentioned earlier. He he's saying to Telemann, he's basically like almost like 
an alter ego, bringing out the real him, saying like, I think that you do believe in something. I think you are searching for something inside of you that is yet to be revealed. And it's almost like that quest for self-actualization or self-understanding. It's it's not necessarily a faith outside of him, but it's almost like his own capacity to see what he's truly made of and how big his heart can be or how deep he can go into himself. I think, Mitzi, you read this book like uh, a writer's dream. Thank you for for doing that. But uh, um, actually, to flash back to Casablanca, I don't know how clear that movie is in your mind, but there is uh, the there's a the character of um, played by Paul Honreid. I'm blanking on his name right now, but he's the French resistance leader who is married to Ingrid Bergman's character and who is sort of a rival to Bogart. And he plays the sort of the Michael role in Casablanca. He's where Bogart's character Rick is a guy who claims to believe in nothing and only looks out for himself. Uh, the re- the resistance leader. Paul Henreid believes in the greater good of all and is brave, willing to give his life at a moment's notice and and, um, a real man of honor. And there are a couple of scenes in there where this Paul Henreid character confronts Bogart in private. And he says to him, one of the things he says, I noticed that you fought in the Spanish Civil War and you didn't fight on Franco's side. You fought on the other side, on the good side. And Bogey sort of blows that off. Oh, that was nothing. I only went there for money or something like that. But Paul Henry again cites another one or two things about Bogey's past, saying to him, you're not the man that you pretend to be. You know, I can see that you have, you know, um, honor within you. And, and and a willingness to sacrifice yourself for the cause, just like me. So I basically stole that. I mean, on instinct, but I also, you know, thought uh, this works. This is a dynamic between two characters that works. And it's not just two characters that you have the dynamic around because you have another person that's sort of a hanger on. She's a sorceress. She's traveling with them. She represents the zealots. She... In a way, when you look at these characters, they're kind of representing these political slash religious factions. You have the Jews and the Zealots who don't want to accept Jesus. They're still waiting for the Messiah. You have the Romans who don't want the religion at all. And you have all these new converts to Christianity. And so I'm just wondering if you can talk about the interplay between that and how these individuals stand for these big political religious ideas. Uh, Well, I'm definitely a believer that every character, every subordinate character should stand for an aspect of the theme, right? And the more we can have disparate characters that are clashing from all different angles, the the better it will be. So um, just as you said, you really said it all, um, that each one of these characters, Michael, the Christian, the sorceress, who's really a Hebrew zealot, even the young girl, though she can't speak, and and Telamon and the bad guys and the Romans. There's certainly a, a real Roman bad guy, a couple of them in there, that they all, each one of them can clash with every other one, right? They, you know, and I think that that's, uh, that's always works in a drama. If I can flash back to another Western movie, the John Wayne movie Stagecoach, where you have 
you know, five or six characters and they're all in the stagecoach and they're all, each one hates the other or, they, or they're at odds with each other. And that, that always works and always makes for, for great drama, I think. Michael is accompanied by someone that we believe at first is his daughter, who is a young mute, and she is powerful. She is very attached to Michael and then becomes very attached to Telamon and is a strong warrior inside of herself. And we learn a little bit about her, that her mom was from Greece and that she died and that she is is one of the carriers of this letter. And she is the one that opened Telemann's heart. So I'm curious about who she was and, and why it was, why you decided it would be a, a young girl to open his heart. It's a, it's a great question. The answer really is instinct more than anything else. I've been trying for years to, to, to find a story that I could bring the character of Telemann back with. I've tried all kinds of them, written outlines and everything, and nothing worked. And Somehow, when I thought about this girl, this character, this mute, feral girl, uh, but who is a, a you know has a lot of spirit to her, I just thought that putting the two of them together is is going to work somehow. Um, and again, I kind of had models. One of the things I do when I'm when I'm working on a story is I'll I'll look I'll ask myself what other stories are like this, and then I'll look at them and see how they how they did it. And um, a couple of them I'll give you are, one is True Grit. If you remember that with the um, Jeff Bridges character, where again, you have this kind of boozy, one-eyed old marshal uh, and, and this young girl that hires him to go on a mission. And somehow the, the interaction between the two of them changes him. And, and it, it absolutely works that it's a young girl. If it was a young boy, it wouldn't work. If it was an older girl, it wouldn't work. If it was an older boy, it wouldn't work, I don't think. And another one that I love is Paper Moon. If you remember that with Ryan O'Neill and Tatum O'Neill when she was nine years old. And it's another story of a, a selfish, self-centered older guy that's out for himself. And this girl who becomes his daughter, in a sense, you know, and changes him along the way. And um, so I just felt like the character of Telemann and the character of this young girl would, would create drama. And while we're at it, I'll give you another one of my theories here, since this is a writer's show. I'm very much a believer in archetypes. And uh, I think that um, an easy way to have power in a scene is to have a clash of archetypes. For instance, in, in Star Wars, if you have the young warrior archetype or the seeker archetype, Luke Skywalker, and you put them together with the sage archetype, Obi-Wan Kenobi, you're gonna have a really interesting scene there. And um, uh, so I thought that the warrior archetype in this story, Telamon, the supreme warrior, with this vulnerable girl that can't even speak and obviously has no money, no resources, is lucky to be breathing, that those that the sparks would fly between them and that it would be a dynamic that would really happen between them. And just even visually putting them on a page in my mind's eye, I thought, ah, that's a, that's a great visual right there. This big tall guy with armor and all this stuff and this little girl that's barefoot and you know looks like an utter ragamuffin. There's something there. Particularly when you can see that they were going to be in essence, the same character once you got it all together. 
Because this is a journey story, I don't know how much you you lay out before you start writing. And I am curious about that. I know that each, this is told in books with titles, um, like book one, book two, and they each have the title. And I could see how if you had written those first, just the titles, that it could create an outline for the book. But what, what is your process? How do you, how do you lay out stories and, and fill it in? In this case, I definitely did lay those out first. Another great question, Mitzi. Thank you for that. Um, I, I, one of the things I, in my structuring process is, you know, I worked as a screenwriter for about 10 years and I really learned, I, you know, I probably was over educated in that area. I think too much like a movie writer, but one of the things that's a big part of writing for film is to all, to start with the end, to always know what's the climax of this story and then to kind of work backwards from that and to build to that climax geographically and narratively. You know, like if we know that Ahab is going to be, you know, lashed to Moby Dick and stabbing him with, the, you know, a harpoon as, he, as the whale drags him under, we can work backwards from that and really, you know, put together, you know, different books, so to speak, of the story. So um, very definitely I, I work like that. I mean, the, the Paul's letter was to the Christian community in Corinth in Greece, right? The book in the Bible is called 1 Corinthians, Paul's letter to the Corinthians. So I knew that it has to end in Corinth. So, and it has to start in Jerusalem. And so it became sort of a geographic, you know, what's the line between these two places? And, and then what narrative uh, events can happen along the way? So I have only read a man at arms and the war of art of, of your books. And you said earlier that you're very interested in archetypes. And I, I sense from you, from both books, this allegiance to a, to not just to archetypes, but to a sort of mythology. There is something maybe not militaristic about it, but, but definitely there's an element of war in all that. There's an element of, black and white, like you resist or you don't resist, you fight or you don't fight. And I just wanted to ask you about that and how, how you alighted on that in the war of arts. Um, a lot of that sort of war analogy comes from being a writer. It comes from the idea that uh, in the war of art, as you know, I really, I talk about this this force that I call resistance with a capital R, that is a force of self-sabotage that we all deal with, right? Um, that distracts us and makes us procrastinate and makes us walk away from our true calling and go to someplace else. So the bottom line is I really do see life as a war, an internal war, an inner war. That, I mean, in Jewish mysticism, there's a thing called the Yetzer Hurrah. It's a negative force that stands between our material plane and the Neshama, the soul trying to block the Neshama from talking to us and us from reaching up to, to that. And I'm definitely a believer in that, you know, that there's this negative force that the writer or any artist face, faces in trying to reach to the higher level, you know, to find ideas, to tell stories, to do whatever it is. So I do feel like as artists, we are warriors and we need the virtues of a warrior to, to confront this 
you know, the virtues of courage, of persistence, of perseverance, of the willing embracing of adversity and that sort of thing. And I might also say, speaking to you as a woman, that we also need, the, a parallel to that would be the virtues of a mother. That, um, that as, an, as, an art, as artists, we are giving birth to something, right? And as a mother, we are in service to that new life, right? And we, get, we sacrifice everything of our own selves to bring that, that new life forth. And even once it's been brought forth, to protect it and to raise it and to educate it and to, and to help it come into its own. So in, in many ways, sort of the characters of this young girl and Telamon are sort of parallels of the mother war virtues and the warrior virtues, which are at the service of some greater new life. Did you have like some rite of passage moment where this, you realized all this? Uh, I've had many, many of them. Yeah. And, and I'm definitely a believer that there's no such thing as one moment. You know, there are incremental moments, you know, you learn something and, and then you learn it again and then you learn it again and then you learn it again. Did ayahuasca have anything to do with it? Oh, it's a great, no, not really. But back in the day, um, mescaline and LSD had a little bit to do with it. Not a tremendous amount, but a little bit to do with it in, in the sense that uh, they showed me this other world in front of my eyes that I couldn't deny its, its existence. So that was somewhat of a moment if we're looking for what you were asking in the, in the previous question. Yeah. Talk more about that if you wanted to. I'd, I would love to because I'm, I'm really curious about it because I think what you're talking about with all of this stuff doesn't happen. Some of it doesn't happen gradually, I think. Some of it just happens like in an aha moment. Maybe that's that. I mean, that's true. They're just a series of aha moments. But for me, when I first, you know, did psychedelics, I used to go down to a couple of beaches with some friends of mine and um, thinking about mescaline, not LSD. And what you saw was the world was so beautiful that you couldn't, the only thing you do is like sit down and just stare. And, you know, watching waves come in on the beach, watching the sunlight on the, on the water, watching birds flying, whatever. And we used to laugh, my friends and me, and just so, whew, you know, just, and so, and then further experiences beyond that. But the, the gist of them were, what I took away from that was this beautiful world, this cosmically beautiful world that we can see now under the influence of this chemistry, this is the real world. That's the real world. When we come back out of that, our consciousness becomes constricted again. And if, if we can't see that beauty in our regular life, there's, there's something wrong with us. You know, that's a failing of us and a failing of ours. And um, so uh, it, it, uh, it opened my eyes to, to, uh, to that world, anyway, to the beauty of the world that we don't see in our regular, you know, restricted human vision, the doors of perception, that thing. Are you interested in Carl Jung? I am, I'm very much, and that's a great question. Yeah, I'm a, definitely a devotee, I would say. And I'm, I'm really a, a believer in pretty much all of it, all, everything that I've read of his I, resonates with me. I haven't read as much as I wish I had, but um, like Memories, Dreams, Reflections, I know you've read that one, Mitzi. 
I mean, that was that that was a real eye opener too. Yeah, I'm definitely a believer. The archetypes, the unconscious, um, the divine ground, all of that stuff. Mm. As a writer or an artist, I don't know how you can work and not believe in that. Yeah, it's I, I sense the influence of that and and sort of Joseph Campbell and mythology. Yeah. Is there anything else that's been a big influence that I've missed? Well, one big influence on me has been that uh, I did a lot of blue collar jobs in my in my 20s and my early 30s. I worked on oil rigs and I drove trucks and I did things like that. And uh, the ethic of that is something I bring with me as a writer. And I really believe that like when I'm when I'm sitting down to write, I feel like I'm a guy showing up at the factory in the sense that I don't want to be precious. Although I believe in these other dimensions, I believe that we get to them by hard work and by just sitting down and grinding it out, you know, and hopefully you get to you get to those moments that are transcendental and you get some of those magical flow moments, but that they come because you are a servant of the muse that shows up every day with your lunch pail and your work boots and you do the job. And I, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm a big believer in the muse. I really believe there is a goddess that flies overhead and looks down on us. And when she sees us hard at work, that warms her heart and she's willing to give us her gifts, meaning ideas. So that that would be another big influence. I mean, just kind of a, a blue collar attitude towards things. So can you read a passage from an author that speaks to you or influenced you as a writer? Okay, I actually I have it here as you asked me to do. This is, I, I won't even say what it is until I read it. And this will seem extremely ordinary unless you pay real attention to it. It's just one paragraph. This morning, I got a note from my aunt asking me to come for lunch. I know what this means. Since I go there every Sunday for dinner, and today is Wednesday, it can mean only one thing. She wants to have one of her serious talks. It will be extremely grave, either a piece of bad news about her stepdaughter, Kate, or else a serious talk about me, about the future and what I ought to do. It is enough to scare the wits out of anyone, yet I confess I do not find the prospect altogether unpleasant. That's the opening paragraph from The Moviegoer by Walker Percy, which is won the National Book Award for Fiction in 1963, I think. And I'm, I'm, I'm not sure why that grabs me so much as an opening uh, paragraph, although everything that happens in the book is contained in that, in that opening paragraph. Um, and it's... Uh, Maybe you can add, it can it can illuminate a little bit of this for me, Mitzi. But also the other thing about that opening paragraph is there's a rhythm to it, and and a point of view that the that the speaker has a sense of humor that the speaker has that also completely drew me in to that to that piece of writing, and. Um, so I'm not sure if that's exactly what you were hoping for, but that's one of my favorite paragraphs in, in, um, in literature. Can you read something you wrote that was tricky or hard or changed a lot from the first draft? Uh, this is from The Lion's Gate, the book about the uh, Six-Day War. And it takes a little bit of introduction here. When I uh, first wanted to, had the idea to write the book about the Six-Day War, 
I called up uh, David Mamet that I'm friendly with, and I asked him if he could introduce me to anybody that could get me in with the Israeli military. So he said, come on over to my house for Shabbat dinner to, you know, this week, and I'll introduce you to a guy. And he introduced me to a former fighter pilot named Lou Lenart, who his birthday was actually three days ago. He would be 101 right now. He died a few years ago. And Lou became kind of my mentor and guru for this book. And one of the stories, sorry for the long warm up or build up here, but Lou Lenart was actually was born in Hungary, came to the States uh, and became a Marine, joined the Marine Corps in World War II and became a fighter pilot. He flew Corsairs out of Okinawa. And when um, the war was over in 1948, when Israel was being born, um, Israel was desperate for pilots. They had nobody over there that could fly and they had no airplanes. And meanwhile, the British had given to the Egyptians 50 Spitfires, which was like a massive, massive gift. And um, the, uh, the young Israelis didn't have any planes at all. And the only planes they could get their hands on were from Czechoslovakia. And they were these cobbled together airplanes made from German junk that had been put together. And so Lou told me about that. He was one of the guys that went to Czechoslovakia to pick up these planes and fly them back to Israel. And in fact, he, he Lou, led the mission that saved Tel Aviv in 1948, a four-plane mission. But in any event, so I interviewed Lou and taped everything. And then in the book, the way I told the stories was I told them in the voices of the individual people. So that this passage I'm about to read to you is Lou talking. But the challenge was, you can't just transcribe an interview, as you know, it goes on for hours. So I had to try to write in Lou's voice and keep it short, but make the reader feel like, ah, this is the guy, now I recognize the guy. So here's, here's the passage, this is Lou talking. This plane was the worst piece of crap I have ever flown. It was not even an airplane. It was put together by the Czechs from mismatched parts left behind by the Nazis. The airframe was that of an ME-109, a Messerschmitt 109, but the propeller and engine came out of a Heinkel bomber. You can't make a plane like that, but it was all we could get, so we took it. How bad, I could go on, but I guess you get the gist here. That, that, that was sort of the, the short part of it. It was really fun for me to write these passages because there were like 70 of them, different people. And um, some were women, some were real old guys, some were young guys, and... Uh, trying to write in their voices. Um, just as a sidebar, I'm sure you know who Yael Dayan is. She's the daughter of Moshe Dayan and wrote a wonderful book called Israel Journal, 19, June 1967, about that war. And she was quite a celebrity at the time. She was sort of a Euro journalist type of person. And when I interviewed her, she was like the deputy mayor of Tel Aviv. And I had read her, all of her books and I would ask her about a certain story that I read in the book. And she would all say to me, it's in the book. <laughs> he said, I wrote about it, it's in the book. And she wouldn't answer me. And so finally I said to her, can I have your permission to steal those stories and just retell them in my own phrase? And she said, yeah, go ahead. She said, maybe you'll make them better stories. Where do you write? Um, you can't see me now, but I'm, I'm, I have a little office at home, um, just in a, in a bedroom and um, just a regular office, you know, with a desk and a computer. What do you do or where do you go to get away from writing? Well, I'll take road trips, driving trips. 
but um, I'll take golf trips. I'm a golfer. Uh, but usually I don't get away from it for very long. You know, I take, uh, I, I'm pretty much like a Stephen King type of guy that writes every day of the year. Who do you show your work to first to get feedback? Uh, um, I have a partner, my first editor, my editor for Gates of Fire named Sean Coyne, who is a best editor I've ever encountered. And um, he has a whole system that he calls the Story Grid. And if anybody wants to log on to storygrid.com, there's a, it's a whole great thing, storygrid.com. And I've been showing him my stuff for, you know, since 1995 or something like that. And I just have complete faith in him. And he gives me great feedback. And I, I don't show it to anybody else. I don't trust anybody else but him. How have you dealt with rejection? Um, I'm a big believer in when you, when you finish one book, you should already be two months into the next one so that you, there's never any downtime or never any dip. And the way I deal with rejection is that, and it's not easy, but I tell, but I, I, hopefully I've already moved on and I'm already into the next project. I'm deep into the next project. And I just say, uh, you know, that's the way it is for rejection. But the other thing is 99% of the responses that I think we all get are rejections. So every book that I've, that I've written that has been a success, it was only bid on by one party. Only one person wanted it. So um, rejection is the norm. And what is your favorite word? <laughs> Work. Because I believe that's the, that's the secret to everything. Thank you so much for your time. I really appreciate it. Hey, thank you, Mitzi. This was really great. And thanks for the great, best questions anybody's ever asked me. So I, and I really appreciate you uh, reading the book so closely and so intelligently and so astutely. So thank you very much. I'm happy to come on anytime you want in the future. You've been listening to First Draft, a dialogue on writing. My guest was Stephen Pressfield, author of the novel, A Man at Arms. If you like today's show, check out my interview with Douglas Preston, whose book, The Lost City of the Monkey God, chronicles the real-life discovery of an ancient civilization buried in a hot zone in Honduras. You can find that interview and the entire First Draft archive of 300 interviews at firstdraftwriters.com. You can stay tuned to First Draft on social media, on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. Just look for First Draft A-D-O-W. You can email me at firstdraftwriters at gmail.com anytime. Remember, there are plenty of extras for becoming a member and donating to First Draft, including access to pitch-free, ad-free content, as well as cuts from the interview that didn't make it into the final show, writing tips from my guests, and more. Join me as I reach for honesty, vulnerability, connection, curiosity, and insights on craft with each episode. I can't tell you enough how much each and every single dollar counts in keeping the show alive. The first tier of support is just $6 a month. So please go to patreon.com slash firstdraftwriters. Coming up in the next few months on First Draft, interviews with S. Kirk Walsh, Joshua Henkin, Christine Mangan, and Kevin McElvoy. I want to send out a huge thank you to my patrons for making this interview happen. Your support makes First Draft a dialogue on writing a reality every week. Please stay healthy and safe. The theme music for First Draft was produced and performed by Murph Mahaffey. I'm your host and producer, Mitzi Rapkin. 
Thank you for listening.